There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England episode 206, Descent to the Underworld. As you may know, there is a growing band of sisters and brothers who keep the history of England going by becoming members. In return for their generosity, they get a members-only podcast series. For those of you who have not yet signed up, I have an invitation. Come over to the dark side. We've got cookies. Well, actually, we don't. But this week, we do have an episode on the subject of nationalism. What does it mean? How has the interpretation of nationalism changed since the 18th century? And the end point of the discussion... Does England have a sense of national identity by 1500? It is, ladies and gentlemen, a dinger with more hum than a dingo's backside. Sign up at thehistoryofengland.co.uk and click on Become a Member. Last time, Henry had waved goodbye to the Archduke Philip of Burgundy, heir to Isabella's Kingdom of Castile, as well as the Low Countries, and would have been well satisfied with himself. Fate had handed him a perler. It's always really handy to have one of the most powerful men in Europe shipwrecked on your coast and at your mercy. Something to bear in mind, by the way, if it happens to you, don't let the opportunity pass you by. I'd suggest spending a bit of time making a contingency plan just in case. I know I shall. One of the conditions of Philip's um, release had been the promise to hand over the latest pretender to his throne, Edmund de la Poole, Earl of Suffolk. You are released, offered Henry freely once he'd got that promised. Which phrase, ladies and gentlemen, is an example of a swifty, a pun designed to avoid the simple form he said in mockery of the books of Tom Swift. We had a bit of a rash of them on the Facebook site. To give you another example, there was Luke's stroke of genius. Take him away, said the king, nonplussed. How good is that? Which is even better than, I used to be a pilot, he explained. There will be more, he expanded. Anyway, onward. The Earl of Suffolk's bolt was well and truly shot. His little brother, Richard de la Poole, was a virtual prisoner left in the German city of Aachen, a surety for Edmund's debts. Which is a helpful tip for ways in which brothers can come in handy, by the way. Note to self. Post-brother to bank manager. Edmund himself was banged up in Philip of Burgundy's castle with not much pretense that he was anything other than a prisoner. And he was powerless. Bray and Henry had identified and neutralised his supporters at home and in Calais, he was, in short, in want of a paddle. In March 1506, he was dispatched by Philip in payment of his debt. The ship was cheered, the harbour cleared, and merrily did Suffolk drop below the hill, below the kirk, below the lighthouse top. It is entirely possible that Suffolk nursed in his bosom the flame of hope. That when he returned, the royal boot would be applied to his noble backside, but that he'd be welcomed back to court after the boot had been applied, no doubt with some hefty bond hanging over him, but he was an earl with royal blood after all. Come and have breakfast, Henry would toast him. One look at the grim face of Thomas Lovell and his sixty hard-faced soldiers probably drove home the horrid truth. 
Down the River Thames he was rowed in a royal barge, through the water gate at the tower and into its dark, damp depths. We really don't know what happened there. There is a reference from a London Chronicle which notes that Dillapool was questioned exhaustively. Huh, exhaustively. Does that sound like a euphemism to anyone else? Exhaustive and as in painful? But we do not know if Suffolk was tortured. All we know is that he was no longer an earl, that Ewell Manor was no longer his pad, it was the king's. We also know that it left his brother Richard living in a nightmare of debt and embarrassment in Aachen. I think I shall finish the story of the de la Pools, if you don't mind terribly, although it does take us out of the chronology. But it'll allow me to tick another box as finished, and I've always liked ticking boxes, to the personal character floor level. Edmund essentially disappeared from view. He wasn't the only de la Poole in the tower, as it happens. His little brother William was also there. He'd been incarcerated when his brother flew abroad when he was but 24. William de la Poole would spend the rest of his life in the tower for 37 years, apparently the longest ever inmate of the tower, until he died at the age of 61 in 1539. Blimey O'Reilly, there's a wasted life for you. Big Brother lived on for a while to boot. In a sense, it was his brother Richard that killed him, though I am aware of the moral confusion in that statement. Richard was probably around 27 when Edmund was taken back to London in 1507. Now there's clearly something about the youngest son of the safe and cautious John de la Poole because people seem to fight his cause. We know from his own words that he owed a mountain of debt but he made a friend in the Bishop of Liège. I'll pay all his debts, the bishop clinked. Richard legged it away from Henry's direction which took him to Hungary where he was welcomed by Ladislaus who turned away Henry's deputation, demanding that Richard be returned to England. And then people continued to fight his corner. Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, for example, actually asked Henry VIII for a pardon on Richard's behalf, only, of course, to be contemptuously refused. But in 1512, Richard tipped up at the French court, and this time it's pretty clear he was in pawn territory, as Louis was clearly using him as a threat to the bellicose Henry VIII, England's young, aggressive, large-thighed new king looking for a fight to restore England's glory. And it's this that killed his older brother Edmund. Although Henry VII had apparently advised his son to take Edmund out of town and finish the job after a nice cup of coffee and a spinach puff, Henry VIII had resisted having him executed when he came to the throne. Not something for which Henry VIII had noted, it has to be said, resisting, by and large, was not Henry's strong suit. And so, as Henry VIII went to war with France, Edmund finally took the short walk to the block and was sent to meet his maker. Richard, the last de la Poole in exile, now claimed the earldom of Suffolk. Oh, and the English throne. Richard de la Poole became known as the White Rose and seems to have been a man of some talent. He became a leader of German mercenaries and fought against the English. He became a citizen of the town of Metz, apparently introduced them to horse racing. Fancy! He remained in contact with the French king, Italian cities, the king of Denmark. He maintained a liveried following of soldiers, since somehow he always managed to talk some money out of his backers, though it must have been a rather stressful, hand-to-mouth existence. His threat was always in the air. Henry VIII was as aware of him as Henry VII had been of his brother. And more than once there was a scare in England that invasion was now imminent. In 1525, now 45 years old, Richard the White Rose led a troop of French pikemen alongside the black band of German mercenaries into the Battle of Pavia in Italy 
on behalf of Francis I, King of France. This was essentially the great showdown between France and the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor Charles V for control of Italy and leadership of Europe. Early in the morning of the 24th of February 1525, Richard desperately attacked to rescue Francis who was in danger of being surrounded and captured. He failed. He was in turn surrounded and cut down and Francis I of France was captured by Charles V which was a poor result for the French, honestly. It was, of course, a poor result for Richard de la Poole, of course. No one likes to be cut down. A messenger of the Emperor brought the news back to Henry VIII. The White Rose is killed in battle. I saw him dead with the others, fired the messenger. And Henry responded in joy, All the enemies of England are gone, possibly showing a lack of empathy. But then this is Henry VIII we're talking about. When William de la Poole died in 1539, this meant finally the end of John de la Poole and his many children and the end of that line of Yorkist threat to the Tudor dynasty. Oakley doakley, I'm going to stick with foreign stuff for a little while longer before getting to Empson Dud. But to do so, I'm going to go back home to Henry's remaining offspring and home life. Although Elizabeth had given birth to seven children, only three were left. The oldest, Margaret, was now in Scotland, James IV's queen, which left just two, Henry and his younger sister Mary. Mary was ten years old when Philip came to stay, five years younger than her older brother Henry. She'll spend a fair proportion of her early life on the marriage market. By the age of two, she'd already been the subject of an offer from Ludovico Saforza, Duke of Milan. But Henry was waiting for a better offer, as you do as a parent. Get rid of that one daughter, his eyes are too close together, and other such detailed analysis. When Duke Philip came to stay in 1506, that better offer seemed to have appeared. Not Philip, of course, but his son, Charles, now six years old. It would be a mittering glatch, especially since Charles would inherit a fair proportion of Europe. And it would be a diplomatic confirmation of a Tudor-Habsburg alliance. So, the ten-year-old Mary was sent out to perform for the Duke, and by all accounts, she did a good job, the poppet. She danced two or three dances, played the clavichord and lute, and everyone said she'd done very well. None of which would have made a hapeth of difference if Henry and Philip hadn't wanted to get it on. But still. In the Treaty of Calais in December 1507, the deal was made. It was not made between Henry and Philip, because Philip was already dead. Queen Joanna brutally locked away, Ferdinand back in control of Aragon and soon Castile. So, it was Philip's dad, Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, who cut the deal. And Mary, at 11 years old, was betrothed. Though by proxy at this stage, of course, she was still too young to leave the nest. And as a royal princess, she was part of England's court and its ceremonial, presiding over things like jousts, for example. So, foreign policy-wise, Henry was now firmly aligned with the Holy Roman Emperor and the Habsburgs. As far as Spain and Ferdinand was concerned, he was happy to wait. And as Ferdinand continued to delay the delivery of the dowry, passing deadline after deadline, poor Catherine was left abandoned with growing desperation. Maybe the unthinkable would in fact happen and she'd have to return to her father, unwanted, humiliated. Meanwhile, Henry Sr. and Henry Jr. had moved much closer together. Henry Sr. was extremely reluctant to let Henry Jr. follow the way of his flesh and take part in the joust for which he was so well designed, and nor would he contemplate sending him away to Ludlow or some other place to learn his trade. But Henry the Spare was duly moved into his position as the heir. He was made Prince of Wales in 1503, as we said last week. And Henry kept his son close by his side, 
talking together, announcing changes and projects in both of their names. And around Prince Henry grew his own group of companions, Charles Brandon, William Compton and others. Names and people we'll come back to next time. So all well and good and seemingly happy. But last time I trailed that this time we'd be talking about two gentlemen, Sir Richard Empsom and Edmund Dudley. So let us do that. So, Henry had been left rather high and dry by the death in particular of Reginald Bray in June 1503. Increasingly, he relied on his other old guard councillors, Bishop Richard Fox and Thomas Lovell in particular. But with the death of Bray and before him Morton, Henry was less and less inclined to share power. It's worth noting also that Henry is now very frequently ill. In 1507, for example, he will very nearly die from something like tuberculosis. And at the same time, he seems to have had an arthritic condition which was inflamed and painful. Despite the fact that he's not particularly old, he's 50 in 1507, and 50 is very, very young these days, folks. Very young. During his 1507 health crisis, his mother, Margaret Beaufort, swept into Richmond Palace to nurse her little boy back to health. But he's clearly frequently in pain. Now, it's always rather difficult to give this sort of fact to the right weight. Henry might have been the King of England, Lord of all he surveyed, and therefore presumably expected to have the wisdom and patience of Solomon. On the other hand, if he felt tired, ill and grumpy, he may behave with less than perfect rationality. He may act, as I do, when watching England's rugby team get trounced by the Kiwis or the Tigers, suffer the indignity of defeat against Exeter or Glasgow, for crying out loud. Namely, he'd be irritable, suspicious, unable to concentrate, frequently downright rude. It's unlikely he'd be quite as bad as me. But it's not impossible. Let us first turn to Polydore Virgil. Obviously, it's slightly ironic that having poured doubt and concern on our Polydore when we're in the reign of Richard III, Tudor lies, propaganda and all that, we're now going to take him very seriously. However, as I hope I said at the time, and I think I did actually, Virgil's dodginess as far as Richard III was concerned was more due to his exposure to the Tudor propaganda and the fact that he wasn't in the country at the time than his quality as a historian. So, let's see what he has to say. Here are some snippets from his Anglica Historia. He gradually laid aside all moderation and sank into a state of avarice. The king wished to keep all Englishmen obedient through fear. The evil of avarice and suspicion, according to Virgil, bred its own self-perpetuating miasma of fear and putrefaction. No sooner had Henry embarked on this course than at once a multitude of informers, a type of creature most ruinous in any state, converged from all directions on the court. While informers were thus trying to twist the king's severity into brutality, there came on the scene two astute lawyers, Richard Ampson and Edmund Dudley. Essentially, by 1503 and the death of Bray, Henry was even less willing to share power than he'd ever been, and he'd never been that enthusiastic about the idea, as you are all well aware. I read an interesting comment by the historian David Starkey, by the way. He points out that under Henry VIII, we're all used to the currents of the court that arose from faction. It's all very popular. Chapuis, the Boleyns, the Howards, all that sort of sexy stuff. He points out that factions existed because it was worth trying to influence the king, because the king's mind could be changed, could be manipulated. Now, this is interesting, because under Henry VII, we haven't heard of any faction. We don't warble on about the Perses or the Bolins or any of that sort of stuff. 
There are two reasons for this. Firstly, Henry VII, again as you were aware, kept power away from the nobility by and large. And secondly, because he's a pretty inflexible sort of cove. He holds power in his hands and executes through his loyal and dependent servants. Now, there's some jostling for position for individuals to get the best jobs in the king's favour. But there are no factions trying to influence policy. Policy comes from the king. The policy is the king's policy. The whole policy, nothing but the policy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So when Bray went, and with Morton gone, and with Elizabeth and Arthur dead... Henry sort of loses all restraint. Henry now spread the jobs out a bit. There would no longer be one man with whom Henry shared a lot of his trust. A number of men began to come to the fore. One of these had been around for a while, a guy called John Heron, the chamber treasurer. Henry and Heron poured over the accounts together deep into the night. And by now it was the chamber which predominated in managing income, just like under the Yorkists, Edward IV, rather than the more public exchequer. We've already noted that Henry signed off every page of the accounts and just how nuttily detailed that was. Some of the notations on those accounts make it even clearer just how detailed he got, down to the very quality of the currency and the coins. In the medieval world, of course, you had no formal industry changing money in between currencies and charging you outrageous rates of interest on your holiday as you do now. The merchants would often do it for you, but what it meant is that precious metal coins from all around the world, circulated everywhere and were, to a degree, accepted everywhere, dependent on the quality of the metal. And so Henry examined the currency he was paid in. Light crowns, he noted one time. Old, weighty crowns on another. The dry old stick was actually going into his chamber, opening up the barrels and strong boxes of coin, sinking his hands into the cases and feeling the quality of the coin. I wouldn't be surprised if he was biting them to test the quality and all that, like you see in films. Next, Henry brought another couple of folks in to take over auditing duties. Their job was to make sure transactions were recorded and followed up using the tried and tested formula, quote, to the king's advantage. If wrinkles or inaccuracies were found, or God forbid evasions on the part of the indebted, they were to be passed on to the council learned in law. You might remember the discussion we had a couple of episodes ago about this court set up under the king's prerogative rights to reinforce debt, led by Reginald Bray. The council learned was where Henry's paranoia and avarice found itself at home. Next, a dedicated master of the ward joined the crazy gang. The master of the ward, John Hussey, his job was to milk the feudal rights of wardship for all he was worth, selling for higher fees. He fitted right into the tactic of making the most of all those monarchs old, out-of-date and presumed defunct feudal dues and aids. 
But for these, he needed a head more expert than Hussey could provide. And so, enter stage left, twirling waxed moustache and rubbing his hands with demonic glee, the first of our principal villains, Edmund Dudley. Dudley had been educated at Oxford, but like so many of Henry's servants, he was of no great wealth or position. Dud was a lawyer, and he had specialised in the prerogative rights of the king. He'd spent his career working in London's courts and so had intimate knowledge of the old lady's secret places, nooks and crannies, and was an intimate of the Italian and homegrown banking houses to boot. He also had a useful friend when he was alive, Reginald Bray. And so in January 1504, Dudley was chosen as the Speaker of the House and his royal career was launched, which for the greater part of five years would look to be a gravy train for the talented Mr Dudley. Oddly, although the Speaker of the House, by the way, was the representative of the Commons, it was a role nominated by the King. So, we know where this stroke of fortune, where it came from. If it hadn't been obvious why Dud had been chosen, it soon became so. Because in the 1504 Parliament, Henry did his level best to sting the country with the oldest and most defunct feudal Jews he could find. Incidentally, this will not be the last time we have this conversation – Charles I will take the same approach. And although it's something of a scandal, as we'll describe, I have to say that the continental centralising monarchies would have laughed, ha-ha, with some scorn at this approach. In France, the king just imposed taxation and when the objections came back said, suck it up, losers, or went French words to that effect. In England, our monarchs, even as tight and efficient as Henry, stuck within the law and custom. The law said that taxation could only be voted by Parliament, and the custom which said that a king should live off his own in time not troubled by war. In a way, all of what follows this king's tyranny stuff is a sad and tragic sign of the relative lack of freedom and power of the English kings, or heartening sign of the lack of freedom and power of English kings. All this pain and trouble to exploit relatively tiny sources of revenue. Anyway, in the January 1504 Parliament... Henry asked Parliament to vote him a feudal aid for the marriage of his daughter. Now, this was a bona fide law. Hadn't been used for ages. But back in the days of Billy the Conk, that was indeed a right of lordship. He also asked for a feudal aid to pay for Arthur's knighting, no matter that Arthur was now as dead as a nail. Now, I stand by my point that if the English kings had really wanted to become the absolute monarchs their cousins in France and northern Italy would and had become they would have sought to break Parliament. Nonetheless, Parliament did not like these Jews. Strictly legal, but without doubt, a little bit dodgy. One of the reasons was that these Jews had another advantage for Henry. In order to collect it, he would have to gather all sorts of new information about his great men, and this information would not be in safe hands. And so, Parliament resisted. It's interesting For so much of the 15th and 16th century, Parliament is essentially a doormat. It's essentially a bunch of folks selected by the great men of the realm and the oligarchs of the towns. There's nothing radical about them. We're not talking Keir Hardy here. But they hold a critical line about the king's financial rights. There was a boundary beyond which they would not go. And in the end, holding that boundary will be enough to make the critical difference when a king finally has the cojones to try and break it in Charles I. Anyway, one of the folks that spoke out against the king's innovations in 1504, by the way, is a young man called Thomas More, 26 years old, fresh from his years at the monastery 
and now launched on a legal career. Of him, we will hear much more. Ladies and gentlemen, we will hear much more. The result for Henry was half a loaf. The king got his cash, but in a traditional format, with no opportunity to gather more information on potential victims. For Dudley, meanwhile, power and influence followed quickly. By October 1504, he was being paid £66 a year to be a king's counsellor, and critically, Dudley was sitting on the council learned. He sat on the council learned because that was where he'd execute the job his boss wanted of him. To ferret, ladies and gentlemen, to ferret. To ferret out any Jews he could exploit. To ferret out any misdemeanours of the king's subjects and make sure they were rigorously punished. Now, we know quite a lot about this because Dudley wrote a sort of confession document about the outcomes of his ferreting, which has survived. And in it, he described what the king wanted him to do. The document was addressed to Henry's oldest remaining servants at the time of the king's death, Richard Fox and Thomas Lovell. There's a killer line in there. What the king wanted was to have, quote, many persons in danger at his pleasure, bound to his grace for great sums of money. And so Dudley zealously constructed a book, a book of victims and accounts. And he and the king sat down and went through it together, deciding on suitable fees and prosecutions and actions. It's awfully sort of like the godfather in some way. Dudley's principal partner in crime was Richard Empson. Again, a man of middle estate and again a lawyer, Empson had been around longer than Dudley, since Warbeck had already fingered him as one of Henry's, quote, low-born and evil counsellors. But it was his elevation to Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster in 1504 that marked a new preeminence for Empson, along with, critically, guess what, his appearance on the council learned. As the influence of these two men grew, there were two broad ways in which they began to poison the atmosphere and character of the king's reign. One was quite simply the king's relentless pursuit of his rights and the relentless pursuit of his subjects. The other was the pervasive influence of Dudley and Empson and their power and the use they made of their newfound power and influence. For example, let us take Robert Plumpton. Robert Plumpton was a Yorkshire knight. Robert Plumpton was a good old traditional medieval landowner. To survive, you needed to know the law and recognise that truth, light and justice had no more than a nodding acquaintance with the law. It was a weapon. And if you could stick that weapon in another landowner's back and take some of his rights and land, all well and good, fine and indeed dandy. But then, to make sure the wheels didn't come off as you did it, you needed some good friends at court. Empson targeted Plumpton and basically tried to disinherit him in favour of his own, Empson's daughter. On the way, traditional tactics were employed, such as the beating of Plumpton's bailiffs half to death until he signed a statement in their favour, in packing the local law courts, the assizes, with supporters, of going along armed with a bunch of bodily and unfriendly-looking blokes, all looking fixedly at the judges, just to help them see the way of the light, you understand, which always worked a treat, and worked a treat in this case, as it happens. Now, in this case, as it happens, Plumpton was actually able to fight Empson off because he also had powerful friends at court, in this case, Richard Fox and Thomas Lovell. And so let me return to the point I made earlier about faction and the relative lack of it in Henry's time. Fox and Lovell defended Plumpton against Empson, so to a degree, there are different channels and currents of power in Henry's court, like Henry VIII's court, 
They all lead in the end to the king, which you forgot at your peril, even if you happen to be called Thomas Wolsey. But Fox and Lovell didn't attempt to move against Empson or indeed Dudley in their positions. They were the king's men. That wasn't the way that Henry's court worked. And in that it was very different to his sons. Nor did Fox and Lovell in any way try to redirect or change Henry's basic policy. By 1504 then, Emps and Dud were installed at the right hand of the king to do his bidding and installed critically on the council learned. The council broadly spent its time looking at two kinds of cases, private suits or government prosecutions. And here, it is critically different to another prerogative court that was to gain a really bad reputation someday, the Star Chamber. In Star Chamber at this time anyway, the government almost never initiated suits. In the Council Learned, the majority of the cases were initiated by the Crown. This was Henry's engine of execution. The very purpose of the Council Learned was to collect the Crown's debts. The offences chased were many and various. It could be trade regulations or misdemeanours of sheriffs and jurors. It could be about false returns, riots, livery, retaining and maintenance, critically. Failure to take up knighthood. Avoidance of the king's feudal rights, such as wardships. On odd occasions there's a murder, but really this was about enforcing all those rights the king wanted exploited. And it was about legal backing for the bonds and recognisances that Henry held over his hapless subjects. Empson and Dudley accessed a stream of information from informants. When they had enough information to act, a writ was sent to an individual. But look, the Council Learned wasn't a common or garden court of law, or even a garden court of common law. (laughs) So these writs didn't tell you anything about why you were being called. And most, it might just say something like, to answer such things as shall be objected against him. Now that's scary. I don't want to receive a writ like that. How do you prepare for that? You didn't even get to know where the court would take place. Since there was no set location, all you knew was the time. So that would be a major panic to boot. There was, of course, no jury. Again, this was a prerogative court. Very good. So, in 1504, Henry has assembled his dream team, replacing his lost minions. Next time, we'll hear more about the dream his team visit on his subjects. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks for all your comments and so on. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.